been up here two seconds and I've already got mic problems. It's not how you start, it's how you end, right? I've always been a late bloomer. We'll get this thing going here. Am I powered up? I am. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. You know, my wife, uh, Kamisha, who doubles as a motivational speaker, told me two pieces of wisdom before I came up here. She said, no corny jokes and uh, no yelling. I guess she thinks I'm a bit of a yeller. So I'll try to obey those two, honey. Um, and, uh, you know, as uh, Steve said, uh, Kamisha and I will only be with you for a couple more weeks. Uh, in fact, our last day uh, here will be the 24th on the morning. Uh, that Saturday, we will frantically rush all of ourselves to uh, the airport to take off for Baltimore. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Kamisha and I have accepted a ministry position in the Baltimore church. And uh, we are very excited about that opportunity uh, to lead their southern region. Uh, and hopefully, God permitting, we will have opportunity to come back uh, and visit you all again. And of course, another uh, special welcome this morning to all the moms. Uh, you know, we uh, got to send my mom some flowers, and uh, she couldn't even respond. My dad had to call me and say, your mother is overwhelmed with emotion this morning by the, the flowers that you sent. And it's always uh, a great thing to be able to give back to moms since they give so much to us. And... Um, I also wanted to introduce another special mom today, and I, I, I promise I won't totally embarrass her, but Jessica, if you would please stand up and wave to everyone. Jessica is in the third row here by my wife, Kamisha. Everybody say hi to Jessica. Uh, Jessica is my co-worker's wife. My co-worker, Justin, is uh, on the East Coast right now for work, and uh, last week, we drove down to Orange County to take them out to the church there. And uh, she decided to drive all the way up here this morning and lug her two kids to attend church with us. And she loves long, awkward hugs from strangers, so make sure you give her a couple of those uh, before you leave. You know, and I got a message from, I got a message from Brian saying, uh, bro, you know, preach what you want, but it has to do something with Mother's Day and next steps. And... Uh, Okay, you know, how do I pull this together? And then something about following Jesus. So I thought, wow, how can I uh, squeeze all this in there? But, you know, it actually wasn't that hard. And as you can see from the, the picture above, and we have photo albums full of pictures like this from our three kids. You know, uh, the first steps that many of us took were with our moms. Some guiding hand to help us along, to encourage us. Uh, and those of you that have kids, you know you get completely corny when your kids start doing things, right? You, would do, you do things with your kids you would never do in front of other people to, to coax them and encourage them uh, along. And moms, uh, not only do they help you take your first steps, they're also the first people that you follow in life. Uh, I remember as a young boy, my mom was an aerobics instructor, and unfortunately for us, a very good one because I raced behind her everywhere we went throughout my youth. I mean, I, I said, Mom, slow down more than I said anything else. And uh, a couple weeks back, she came out to visit, and we went to San Diego for the weekend, and for the first time in my life, she told me to slow down. And I felt really excited about that. She's following me now. Um, but, you know, learning how to follow is a valuable life skill. Learning how to be comfortable being led and directed. 
And what, what is required to make leadership successful and followership successful is an element of trust. And that's what mothers bring to the equation is that trust. We know their, their smell. Scientists tell us that a baby can smell their mom. We know their voice. And the connection there is intense. A, a mother, they've done tests and research on this, a mother could listen to audio recordings of 100 babies cry and pick out her child. That's pretty impressive, the connection that we have there. And that starts very early. And that's what creates that follower relationship. But it's interesting, in our society today, I don't know too many of us that want to walk around referring to ourselves as followers. You know, I interview people for a living, and at this point in my career, I've conducted over 2,000 interviews, and each interview lasts anywhere from an hour and a half to eight hours, depending on the situation. And I've yet to have a single person list being a follower as one of their attributes. I've never had someone come in and say, you should really hire me for this position, or you should really be uh, comfortable about my suitability to hold a national security clearance because I'm a great follower. Nobody wants to list that. High school students, how many of you want to go to the party and say, hey guys, I'm a follower? Nobody wants that moniker. It's associated as a negative. But if who and what you're following are truly worthy of your imitation, of your devotion, it could make all the difference. Turn with me now to John chapter 11. If I can get there. Can you help me, bro? There we go. Our primary text today is going to be John chapter 11. We're going to spend some time here. Uh, but to build the context and kind of understand where we are when we get to this verse, verse uh, 1 through 16, this is at a point in Jesus' ministry where he's really starting to come out with his core agenda where he's really starting to make it clear to the people around him what he stands for. And he starts saying some things that bother people. And right before chapter 11 and chapter 10, he and his disciples are in Judea, and they had been there for a feast that I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute. And we know it was the winter time, and they had traveled in from the countryside. And during his time in the city, Jesus said that he and God were one. That if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, and there's really no distinction. Well, of course, in that day, that was considered to be blasphemy. I mean, just imagine if you walked into downtown L.A. and someone came up to you and said they were God. How would you respond? You would think they were nuts, too. And in fact, that probably does happen all the time in downtown L.A., you know? But people didn't like this, and in fact, the religious leaders, who were also the political and cultural leaders of the day, they pick up stones to kill him. They're so infuriated by his statements and the fact that he's leading people to this belief and that some were following him. And he's got his team of disciples. They were ready to kill him. And so in the chapter 11, verse 1, this is the backdrop of our story. And what's happening now is three people that Jesus loves very much, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, three siblings, they send word to Jesus who had by then been out in the countryside and they said, Jesus, you need to come here for Lazarus whom you love is sick. And we'll pick up there in verse 1. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, 
so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Notice the singular tense there. You are going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, look, guys, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is also known as Didymus, which in the Greek means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. My first point, I'm bad with clickers, the sun will set. You know, as you can see, the disciples aren't too fired up about the prospect of going back to Judea. In fact, they kind of removed themselves from the equation when they said, Jesus, you can go on and do that. And this is reasonable. You know, they're afraid for their safety. And uh, it makes sense. I would be too if I was in their situation. And so they said, you know, why are you going back? What, what, what are you thinking? Going back there, you're going to die. And, and Jesus answers this question in a very peculiar way, doesn't he? He says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. I, I think in a very practical way, the disciples, when they're hearing this, they must be thinking Jesus is talking about time management. You know, may, maybe it's in the afternoon and they're looking up, you know, there's no watches or clocks at this time. And they're, they're probably estimating, okay, how much time do we have? Okay, and, and we know it's winter. And the reason we know that is because they had just come from the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. And when is Hanukkah? In December, right? So it's either late December, early January, it's cold. But what do we know about the length of a day in the wintertime? It's shorter, right? So quite literally, the sun was going to go down faster than normal. And in a day before cell phones and AAA, you probably didn't want to be out in the Judean countryside when the sun went down. And Jesus even says, look, if you walk at night, what's going to happen? You're going to stumble. You might fall down a rocky cliff. You might be attacked by bandits on the road. There's danger walking at night, so you need to walk while you have the light. But you only have so much of it. You know... There's a spiritual meaning here that he's trying to communicate to them that I'm sure many years later when the Holy Spirit led them into truth probably clicked in their mind. What Jesus is telling them, and of course they don't know of his imminent death at this point, that they've only got him, the light of the world, for a limited period of time. In the end, Jesus' public ministry was only three years. It's a very short period of time. And so he's trying to communicate this sense of urgency. The sun is going down. Someone needs us out there. 
And you want to stay, but we need to go. Time is of the essence. Jesus had a mission. He had a purpose, and he wasn't confused about it. He knew what his role here was. And so the lesson for you and I today as his followers, and that's what this series is all about, following Jesus. It's not okay to be an observer of Jesus. You need to be a follower of Jesus to call yourself one of his men or women. You have to go and do. Christianity is not a spectator sport. You have to get in the game. And what he's telling them and preparing them for, because they would go on to be the church, to expand his spiritual empire when he was gone. So he needed them to get this message now. And the message is this. Look, we need to do what we've been called to do with the little bit of time that we've been given. But here's the catch. None of us know how much time that is. Not a person in this room knows when the sun is going to go down on you. There's a very real possibility I might not make it off this stage. Or make it home today. Or make it to Baltimore. We don't like talking like that. But those are facts. And that's the urgency that propelled Jesus to get moving before the sun went down. That's where the urgency comes from. And I want you to understand that even in the very beginning, following Jesus had risk associated with it. These men followed him at at their own peril, to their livelihood, to their families. They wouldn't have probably just stoned Jesus had they gone back and they gotten their way. They would have had to snuff out the seeds that he planted, and that would have been these men. And so when I look back in history, and I see these people willing to give it all and follow, I'm amazed. I'm impressed by the fact that they were the first followers. That's a risky situation to be the first follower. And in three years of ministry, the Son of God, the creator of the earth, performing miracles left and right, how many followers do you think he had in his train at the end of his life? The scriptures tell us about 120. I can name thousands of worldly figures, military, political, cultural leaders, business leaders who have way more followers than that. So what are we to conclude? That Jesus' methods were ineffective, Or that his approach needed some tweaking? Maybe he needed a team of consultants to tell him how to reach the masses. And he needed the benefit of mass marketers that we have today. Maybe if he had only had Facebook... He would have done better. That's not what the scriptures are trying to tell you. What they're trying to tell you is that faithful followers are a rare and valuable commodity on the earth. Faithful followers willing to go back and face the stone throwers are hard to find. But those are the people that he's calling. I want to share with you now a video. Bro, if you can help me throw this up. This is a discussion about how a movement begins. Pay close attention to the role of the leader and the first follower. You play that for me now. So ladies and gentlemen, at TED we talk a lot about leadership and how to make a movement. So let's watch a movement happen, start to finish, in under three minutes and dissect some lessons from it. 
First, of course you know, a leader needs the guts to stand out and be ridiculed. <laughs> but what he's doing is so easy to follow. So here's his first follower with a crucial role. He's going to show everyone else how to follow. Now notice that the leader embraces him as an equal. So now it's not about the leader anymore, it's about them, plural. Now there he is calling to his friends. Now if you notice that the first follower is actually an underestimated form of leadership in itself. It takes guts to stand out like that. The first follower is what transforms a lone nut into a leader. <laughs> and here comes a second follower. Now it's not a lone nut, it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news. So a movement must be public. It's important to show not just the leader, but the followers, because you find that new followers emulate the followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, and immediately after, three more people. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point. Now we've got a movement. <laughs> so notice that as more people join in, it's less risky. So those that were sitting on the fence before now have no reason not to. They won't stand out. They won't be ridiculed, but they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. So, <laughs> over the next minute, you'll see all of the, uh, those that prefer to stick with the crowd, because eventually they would be ridiculed for not joining in. And that's how you make a movement. But, let's recap some lessons from this. So, first, if you are the type, like the shirtless dancing guy, that is standing alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals. So it's clearly about the movement, not you. <laughs> okay, but we might have missed the real lesson here. The biggest lesson, if you noticed, did you catch it? Is that leadership is over-glorified. That yes, it was the shirtless guy was first, and he'll get all the credit, but it was really the first follower that transformed the lone nut into a leader. So as we're told that we should all be leaders, that would be really ineffective. If you really care about starting a movement, have the courage to follow and show others how to follow. And when you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first one to stand up and join in. And what a perfect place to do that, Ted. Thanks. <laughs>now you may be wondering where the venue is for all of this dancing and I as I was watching this video I thought surely I recognize some of those moves I've seen those before so I researched it and that was actually a Marici family reunion right there. That's, that's where that was <laughs> babe was that corny my okay I'm, I'm sorry that was borderline borderline okay now, here, here's the thing, guys. I, I, I could preach all day just from that video. I mean, there's so many points in there about the role of a leader and the follower and the momentum. But remember before I asked you, you know, what about Jesus' methods? Did he, did he really think that he was going to do much with 120 people? I've seen apartment complexes with 120 people in it. You know, what, what kind of impact is he going to have on the earth with 120 people? And the reality is, that phenomenon took place, but it took place after he was gone. And you'll notice the speaker said that it's not about the leader. We over-glorify that leader. We put him up on a pedestal and say, it's all about that guy. But the more people that come, the further you get away from that leader and you just start imitating other followers anyway. 
It's not about the leader. And so I thought, well, how do I apply this to Christianity? It's kind of hard to say that Jesus is overglorified, that his role was somehow trumped up. But listen to Jesus' view of himself. What did Jesus even say? He said, you will go on to do greater things than I did. Jesus had this phenomenon in mind. He wanted the world to catch fire, not with a bunch of leaders out there trying to start something new or different, but followers willing to imitate him, willing to get up off their seat and go dance the crazy dance in front of the world. That's what Jesus called us to do. So it's not about creating your own life or carving out your own existence or tailor-making your time on earth to your ends. It's about giving your life to his ends and staying on his coattails as long and close as you possibly can. Now, not everybody watching this joined in. Did you notice that? Even at the very end, even at this mass pit, mass crowd, there's still a few people who said, eh, yeah, it's not for me, you know? Now, in Jesus' lifetime, he called many people. He sat before audiences of thousands of people. When he fed 5,000 people, Jewish historians tell us that they didn't count the women and they didn't count the children. So chances are there could have been 15, 20, or even 30,000 people there on that day all to listen to Jesus. Lots of people heard the call, but only a few responded. Only a few heeded the call. And we see as we read through the gospel some of the objections that people give to why they can't follow Jesus right away. We see examples of people running up to Christ and saying, look, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my parents. Seems like a reasonable request. Based on tradition, we know that it was the responsibility of the oldest son to see to the end of his parents' estate. Maybe a man is trying to do the righteous thing. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. It seems like a legitimate excuse. Another person says, hey, forget bury him. Just let me go say goodbye. There's no cell phones or email. They won't know where I am. They can't find me on Facebook or LinkedIn. If I don't say goodbye, they'll think I'm dead. Let me go say goodbye to my folks. Sounds like a reasonable request. Another rich young man comes up to Jesus and he says, I followed all the rules. I've stayed in bounds. I've lived that orderly life. I've gone to church three days a week. I pray every morning. Jesus doesn't even object. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, I think you have. But there's one thing in your life that needs to go for you to follow. Fill in the blank. It doesn't even matter what that one thing is. The sad part about it is that it only takes one thing. All the benefits God offers, it can only take one thing for you to walk away sad. And you won't just walk away sad, you'll spend the rest of your existence sad as well. But Jesus wants you to follow. He wants you to come, but he's making it clear to his disciples, the time to do that is now, because now is the only time that you know you have. Delaying your discipleship, putting it off, telling yourself, well, I'll give it another six months or a year, or maybe when I have kids and I want them to have religion, maybe I'll wait till then to follow God. Or maybe after I've partied a little bit, or, you know, sold my, my royal oats or whatever, you know, these, these things that we tell ourselves, there'll be some better day, some better time, some better place, when all the conditions are perfect in life, for me to be the man or woman God wants me to, de- to be, that's a myth. There is no perfect time. The only time is now. That's the time. You know, life is a precious gift 
You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. It was given to you. And it will be taken away. You've got to spend it the way God tells you to spend it so that you can enjoy the happy ever after with Him. There is an urgency here. If you're not a Christian today, no doubt you've thought about it. I don't believe there's a person on earth that doesn't think about God. You could be the hardest, staunchest atheist there is. You know in your heart God is out there. You hear Him calling you. You see that people who are in the church are living a slightly better life than you. They're not perfect, but you do admire what you see. I've had coworkers, friends, people come up to me and say those, those very same words. Matt, you just look like your life is together. And I say, well, you haven't gotten close enough. Come, come home with me and see. They're not seeing my achievement or discipline or the uh, superb good looks that I offer. <laughs> they see the polish of Jesus on my life. And that's what they want. That's the, the moth to the flame effect. I had the courage once to get up and dance like that. My friends thought I was crazy. My parents thought I was crazy. My girlfriend at the time thought I was crazy. <laughs> I erased it promptly. There is a cost to following, and Jesus doesn't make any bones about it. But it's worth every cent, and there is no time to waste. Let me ask you honestly today, where would you be with God if the sun went down on you today? If this was it, or, if, or like Jack Bauer, you got 24 hours, make the changes, what would you do? If you got audited by God, Jesus bust open the door to your house, I'm coming in, we're counting everything, how are you going to fare? In the end, these are questions that you need to be asked from time to time because our pride won't let us ask ourselves very often. Have you heeded the call to follow? And if you have, the message for you is the same. Maybe you followed Jesus 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You heeded the call. You got up and you did the shimmy and you're, you're part of the crowd. But what have you done with every year since then? Have you been faithful? Have you stayed close to his coattails? How far off the trail have you ventured? You know, one other thing I love about Jesus in his example and what we see in his conversation with his disciples here in John 11 is the clarity of his conviction. There's no confusion in his mind. There's no waffling back and forth. There's no sit down, let's have a meeting and discuss what the, the strategy will be. He knows. He's not plagued by that dreadful feeling that so many in the world have of not knowing what they want to do with their life, where they want to go, or who they want to be, or what they want to do. That's a sinking, agonizing, terrible feeling when you are directionless and aimless. It eats away at your hope and your security. And that is often what propels people into all kinds of sin and folly and, and risk-taking to try to satisfy that thirst that they don't even know where it's coming from. This is what God sees when he looks out into the world. He saw it in Mary and Martha. Fear, confusion, what's happening? My brother is dead. And when I told you, you waited two more days. It's challenging. You know, Jesus knows that a traveler without a destination is little more than a wanderer. A traveler with a destination but no compass is lost. 
And one who attempts to travel in the dark is both. You're lost and you're wandering. When Jesus looks down upon the earth, that's what he sees. And he wants those of us who have heard the truth and received the light to be the light for those lost, wandering souls out there. He has no desire for his children to live this kind of life. If you turn to slide five, there you go. Massive men lead lives of quiet desperation. This man, Henry David Thoreau, was a a contemporary of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Emerson had a house by a lake, uh, Waldo Pond. And Thoreau said, I need to get out of the city. I got to get out of life. I got to check out. I want to go sit at this pond. And so he went and sat at this pond for two years. And he fed himself by hunting and fishing and he chopped wood. And he he lived this Spartan lifestyle because he just wanted to get away from the world so he could view it from another angle. And this is the conclusion that he reached. So when I look out there, what I see is a world full of people who are quietly going about their life. But there's a desperation in all of us. There's a fear. There's an emptiness. There's a lack of balance. Something is wrong. We can see it in each other, but we dare not mention it because we lack the vernacular to call it what it is. Their eyes had not been enlightened by the truth. And that's where the world will leave you every time. Why choose that path? Jesus beckons you to to follow. Come, get off that road. It leads to nowhere. And there's a lot of pain in between. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 Solomon says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You know, the heart and mind that has not been opened by the truth, they have this awareness in them of something bigger and greater than themselves, something ancient and timeless and good, but they don't know what it is. They can't fathom God. Because the light has not yet come into their world. They're in darkness. And they're stumbling. And they're falling. And Jesus is saying, we need to go and call the dead men from the tomb. There will be stones. There will be naysayers. But this is the condition of the world. You can look away from it, deny it, bury your head in your work, in your occupation, in your pastimes and recreation. But the quiet desperation goes on all around you. Don't participate in it. Bring light into it. Slide six, please. There we go. Ecclesiastes chapter three, or chapter 11, verse three. Solomon, again, in all of his wisdom, his God-given wisdom, is observing life from his perch as a king and as a judge, people coming to him all the time for advice. He says these words, whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. What does Solomon mean about life? What he's stating is that the direction a tree is pointing when it falls is irrelevant. What matters is where it stood. What matters where it got to in the end. Wherever you fall, that is your finish line. It doesn't matter if the real one was further down the road. Where you got to with the time that you had and where you fall is it. You can't stand a dead tree back up. It's not enough, you see, in the Christian life to point in the right direction. 
It's not enough to have the right intentions or a good game plan or to look over yonder on the horizon and say, that's where I want to one day be if you're not willing to get up and move. We're not spectators of the life that Jesus called us to. It's not enough to just be educated on Scripture and to be able to talk about it at the coffee table. It's meant to be done, performed, executed. That's the only way that your roots get pulled up and get further down the road. Because where you fall when your time is up is it. It's a precious gift. And we've got to get serious about it. In verse 4, he says, Whoever watches the wind will not plant, and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. You know, picture a farmer, 4000 BC. He's got a handful of seed. And he's renting land from a landlord. That was how they did it in those days. Maybe 0.03% of the population owned land. Everybody else was a hired worker. And the, and the landowner comes and he gives you two bags of seed and he says, this is it. It's what we got for the harvest. And so you're that property manager and you take your seed out there and you're looking at the wind and it's swirling left and right. And you go, man, if, if any of these seeds don't grow, I'm in trouble. I need to maximize profit here or my kids don't eat because the landlord's taking his lion's share. I get the leftovers. And I'm the one in the sun breaking my back. i got to feed myself to carry on that labor. These seeds mean everything to me. You think you're not going to be a little reluctant to throw them when the wind is blowing? You don't want them getting scattered on the rock. You can't afford it. So you will stand there all day. What are you doing? You're looking for the perfect time. The perfect time that never comes. If you're harvesting grain and wheat, which is what he's reflecting on here, you know, they, they, they mow the lawn, they bring it in, these big shucks and, and, of wheat and the long stalk, and it's got the chaff at the top to protect the grain. And all you want out of all of this is the grain. That's all you're after. That's your flour. That's your bread. That's what feeds your wife and kids. So you bring it all in and they beat it on the ground. They hammer it in on a winnowing floor and they shuck it and they try to separate as much of the wheat from the chaff as they can. They've got to get that grain off the stalk. You can't do it by hand. It'll take you a thousand years. And then they take this big winnowing fork. It looks like a big rake and they throw it up into the air over and over again. And what they need is some cooperation from nature. They need some wind to come and blow the chaff away. You see, the grain's too heavy. It'll fall right back down. They need to separate the wind from the chaff. But if you watch the clouds and you think it's going to rain, you will never harvest. Because when you throw your stuff into the air, the rain brings it all right back down. You've accomplished nothing. It's a waste of time. What Solomon is telling us, do not watch or stare at the obstacles ahead of you or the potential for failure. Throw your seed anyway. Harvest anyway. In life, there will always be dark clouds and a steady headwind. It's just the way it is. It was that way for Jesus, and therefore it will be for anyone who follows His path. Jesus didn't stand there pointing in the right direction. He didn't stand gazing at the clouds. He didn't worry about the rain. He didn't wax poetically in the temple courts about philosophy. He walked the narrow road. And that's what we're called to do. Next slide, please. Slide seven. I'm kind of a poetry geek. You might have realized that now. I shared a Robert Frost poem with you the last time I spoke. And this is one of my favorites. This poem he wrote in the early 20th century called The Sound of Trees. 
And many of his poems are about uh, nature and his observations of nature, but he often personifies nature because in it, he believes he sees the reflection of mankind and our habits and tendencies. And in this one poem, he's talking about trees and he's sort of talking to himself, you know, why do we like to live around trees? You ever think about that? Everybody's house got a big tree in the front yard and when you really think about it, it doesn't make sense. It's a pain in the neck. You got branches falling on your roof. They make noise. They're a lightning you know, rod. But we like them and we want them there. Even though they make all kinds of noise, even in the middle of the night, they rock back and forth and they're creaking and the animals are running in and out of them. They make all this noise, but we still like them. And then he starts to realize as he's watching trees, wow, you know what? They're telling me something about myself. I see a little bit of humanity in these trees. They're always talking, but they never go anywhere. He says about the trees, they are that that talks of going, but never gets away. And that talks no less for knowing, as it grows wiser and older, that now it intends to stay. But my feet tug at the floor, and my head sways to my shoulder sometimes when I watch the trees sway from the window or the door. But I shall set forth for somewhere. I shall make the reckless choice someday when they are in voice and tossing so as to scare the white clouds over them on. I shall have a lot less to say but I shall be gone. You know, what Frost is telling us is that the trees are just like people. They talk and talk and talk about where they're going to go and what they're going to do, but all they really do is age in place. They grow wiser, but not from experience, just from more talking, more pointing, more planning, more philosophizing, but they've never gone anywhere. They've never really followed anything. And as he watches this, he's getting sucked in. He says, I, I watch and I sway and my, I think about it and I get sucked into this gaze. And they're luring me in and it's attractive. And, and I'm getting sucked in by this, this uh, malaise and this trance of the static life. The play it safe life. The sit right here and everything will be okay kind of life. I got roots here, I got shade, I got other trees to talk to, I get a little sun, water, I'm good. I don't need to go anywhere. And he feels himself becoming a talking tree. And then in a fit of conviction, he says, no, 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 not me. I'm going to go somewhere. My feet are heavy at the floor, but I'm going to make the reckless choice. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. I'm not going to announce it with trumpets. But one day I'll be gone. I'm not going to be a talking tree. You know, there's a great message in there for all of us. And so many people who sat there and talked about Jesus, he was the talk of the town. But their roots were too deep in something other than good soil. The world held them down. The safe, static, common life took the adventurer spirit right out of them. Do not be a talking tree. Do not waste your blessed life thinking about doing great things. Commission and I have been asked to go into the ministry eight times. And in every situation, we either freaked out, chickened out, bailed out, or something was wrong. I have a great career. I make great money. I get promoted all the time. I've had exceptional performance awards. At work, I do great 
It's important to me. When I signed my resignation papers, I felt emotional about it. I can come up with a huge list of why doing ministry at this stage in my life is reckless and dumb. I had to sign away my retirement pension the other day, saying I'm forfeiting my rights to this. That was tough. You know, I no longer want this. There's safety there. There's security there. Gone. Out the door. I'm not saying I'm some fearless, triumphant follower of Christ. But what I'm saying is I just really don't want to be a talking tree. I want to live that reckless life. Not careless, not foolhardy. It's not reckless when the one you're following can be trusted. And Jesus can be trusted. But if you're on the outside looking in, and you're wondering about this whole Christianity thing, this whole Jesus fella, listen, there is some recklessness in it. The world will tell you it's foolish. It's crazy. You don't need it. Why give all that up? The devil has been telling people that for thousands of years. He even told Jesus the same things in the desert. I'll give you more. You go my way, it'll be better in the short run. That's the fine print. That's the part you don't see. But even Jesus will tell you, look, you follow me, you will have no place to lay your head. If the world hated me, it will hate you too. Your family members might think you're nuts. Your friends might think you're crazy. Do you have the courage to be the first follower? You're not going to be the first Christian. I think, you know, uh, Andrew or something was the first follower. We don't, that slot is gone. But can you be the first follower in your family? Can you be the first one of your friends to get up and follow Jesus? Can you take that risk? It's not like Vegas. The odds are a lot better. But you're going to feel for a minute like you're jumping off a cliff. Jesus tells us to consider others better than ourselves, to turn the other cheek, to love those who persecute you, to pray for your enemies. That's a wild, reckless life. So opposite than the world's MO, you will suffer for being different in any culture across the world. But that is what it means to follow. As I conclude this point, understand that there will be stone throwers, heavy rains, a lot of dark clouds, naysayers, and a million reasons why you shouldn't do it. But there's one really good reason why you should. And we're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. Can you break the trance of the common life? Can you crack the mold the world has put around you and make that reckless choice like Frost did? To go do something. Follow Jesus. Slide eight, if you would. My second point today is the edge of faith. Let's turn back to John chapter 11. And we're going to finish the story in chapter 11, verse 17. It says in verse 17 that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and she called Mary aside. The teacher is here and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet returned to the village, but was still at a place where Mary, or where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. When or where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then Jesus, or, and then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You know, we see here that Mary and the Pharisees are essentially asking the same question. The same underlying problem or dilemma is in their minds, but they're asking it in two very different ways. What I see from Mary is someone who is grieving, suffering, and her faith is being stretched. And she is thinking the same thing. You, you gave blind people sight. You healed lepers. And yet you let my brother die. I'm sure, like any human being, that's what she's thinking. But what is she doing? She's trying to remain reverent. She's trying to control herself and not be offensive to Jesus and trying to understand this deep love and this deep pain living side by side inside of her heart. The Pharisees aren't doing this. Their criticism is just sarcastic skepticism. That's all it is. They're using this as, a, as an opportunity to mock Jesus. They're grateful for situations like this to poke and prod at who and what he is. Few questions are asked of God more than the question, why? He gets that all the time. Everybody asks that question. You could go through your whole life telling you, yeah, I don't believe in God, there's no God. You get in a car accident, oh God, right? It happens all the time. Oh, I don't believe in God, he's not real. Until something bad happens. Until the rubber meets the road. Frederick Nietzsche, whole life is no God. God has ruined society, da 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 You know what the last known image of Nietzsche was? In his deathbed, shaking his fist at heaven. What does that tell you about what he really believed? He was fighting God the whole time. That's what he was doing. We ask God, why me? Why now? Why this? Why not? We do it all the time. When our faith is challenged and stretched, it's the natural thing to do. There's nothing wrong with asking why. God expects it. And in fact, it's his opportunity to try to teach us. Mothers, what question do you get asked the most from your little kids? Why, mom? Why? Because I said, why? Why'd you say? Right? You use it back and forth. Why, why, why? Everything. I get asked why a million times a day from my little kids. It's normal. It's healthy. It's good. We have inquiring hearts. We want to know and understand. There's nothing wrong with asking why. The problem is, can we handle the answer when it comes? 
There's some truths about life that we don't like. Sometimes we're asking why because we're looking for a way out. But Jesus does all of these things and allows this suffering to exist in our life for two reasons, and he tells us. He doesn't leave us in the dark. In verse 4 and 15, he says to bring glory to God and to make us believe. Those are the two reasons why tests and challenges come in our life. It's faith that God is after. And he will manufacture situations and circumstances in your life to bring you to a point of belief, of existence. He will pursue you into every sin, debauchery, adultery, addiction, pornography, anger, lust, greed, you name it. He's been there and back again a million times. He knows the road and he will come to get you out. Will you follow? And Martha, I try, as I always do when I'm reading the scriptures, to put myself in the situation. I want to be a bug on the wall. I want to be there and feel it and take it in. And I ask myself, how would I feel if I lost a loved one knowing that God could have prevented it? Knowing that at the snap of his finger, the twinkle of an eye, I could have been spared that pain. And so there's a complicity with God in all of this, right? He authorized it. He allowed it to happen. How do I feel about that part? That's where the rub is for so many people in this world. And so I searched my life and it didn't take long. The closest I've ever been to this kind of situation happened to me in January of 2011. Many of you have met my children. And in January of 2011, our our son Cole was born. And when I found out that we were having a boy, I was extremely excited. I couldn't wait. I wanted to have that boy so bad. And I'd been waiting for it, and uh, the pregnancy went well. Uh, There were some minor issues along the way with water retention and some other things, but everything went fine. We get there, we run to the hospital, and throughout the labor, the doctors keep coming in, and they keep checking this monitor, a doctor and a nurse, and they come in, they kind of whisper to each other, and they leave, and didn't really notice it at first, and then after a while, it kind of caught my eye, like something's going on. And I don't know whether to love them or hate them, but they didn't tell us anything that was happening, but I found out later that... Cole's heart was plunging. His heart rate kept, it'd come up and then it would fall real far. And it'd come up and then it would fall. And, and they, were, they were worried. So I'm there. I'm holding a leg. I got Kamisha on one side. My mom's on the other. She's pushing. Cole comes out. I'm excited. The moment I've been waiting for. He's coming. His crown's on through. He was silent and blue and lifeless. And as I looked down at my son, my first thought was, He's dead. That was the first thought that came through my mind. And I looked up and my mother was across from me and she was thinking the same thing. We just stared at each other white with fear. And as much as I'm ashamed to tell you, my very next thought was this. I thought to myself, like a ticker tape across my mind, it said, God, if you take my son, you're going to lose me. That's what I thought. Now, I don't know why I thought that. Why didn't I say God help? Or why didn't I say God please? Or why didn't I praise God? That I even had the opportunity to have a daughter before. I don't know. I believe it was just the pinnacle of fear in my mind. It was the worst case scenario happening. And the only leverage I have with God is to withdraw my discipleship. That's the only poker chip I've got in this relationship. You do this to me, I'm out of here. I'll share my faith, I'll study the Bible with people, I'll preach on Sunday, no problem. You want me to tithe? Okay, you take my son, that's it. I can't go over that edge. That's too steep, it's too much. For me to ask. You know, this situation lasted maybe three minutes. They pulled Cole out. They ripped him out. They cut the umbilical cord, which had been wrapped several times around his neck and was suffocating him. 
They resuscitated him and brought him back to life. Within an hour after all of this, I was grieved. I felt ashamed of myself, but the damage had been done. I had been exposed. And I believe what God did on that day was not to mess with me, not to play games with my mind. God's too loving for that. But I believe what he did was he took me by the hand and he walked me out to the very edge of my faith and said, this is it, son. This is as far as I can go with you. I cannot ask one bit more of you. This is the perimeter of your faith in me. This is the outermost limit and boundary. And guess what? This boundary's got to move. I've got to expand the border. We've got to have more real estate of faith here, son. Because I've got to do more things with you. I also think God was making it clear that discipleship does not just apply to those few areas of life that I'm comfortable with. Everything is included in his lordship. The most precious belongings I have, my children, my wife, my health, it is all on the table. God is the Lord of everything. But I was Peter and the rooster had crowed. And I knew that I needed to grow. I needed to improve. I had been exposed. The x-ray of my faith was on the board and I could see all the holes and breaks in it. It was time for me to take the next step in my faith. No one enjoys these kinds of tests, but there are few things better for you. There are few things that will propel your growth as a disciple more than these kinds of tests. But you got to weather the storm. you got to stay in there. There's no injection or potion on earth that can bolster your faith more than a trip to the edge and back can do. And he will take you there. Where is the edge for you today? How much real estate in your heart does God really have to work with? He's got money. He'll buy more. But are you selling? Will you let him have more of you? And will you follow? Turn with me now to chapter 12. And we're going to start concluding here shortly. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, we see a very different Mary than we did in chapter 11. We see someone who's been changed by a great test. And in her we see just how much following Jesus can really change someone. In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is what overcoming a challenge will do to you. When I look at Mary here, it's very different than the Mary we saw crying at Jesus' feet before. What we see here represents everything that is right about the surrendered life. She's in a posture of peaceful worship and service to her king. That's discipleship right there. If someone ever asks you, what does discipleship look like? Show them this verse. She's serving God. She's worshiping God all at the same time, but she's not complaining. She's not overburdened. She's not kicking the goads or fighting or screaming. She's doing it willingly because she survived the test. She's been to the edge and back again. But God answered the question, why, didn't he? To get her to this place. 
And this is what he wants all of us to experience. This is the posture he wants you to be able to maintain during the storm. Can you get there? Will you let him take you there? You know, some have speculated that this uh, expensive perfume that she used to wash Jesus is meant to represent the extreme cost of her sins. The sins he would later die for. And it's also true, we know from Matthew, that at these moments, she didn't even know it, but she was preparing him for his burial. Because in those days, bodies, dead bodies, had to be cleaned and washed with expensive perfume. And so she was doing that. But she didn't think that way. She was simply giving the best that she had to offer to the Savior that she loved. Are you doing the same today? You know, when I think about God's grace and the expense of my sin, it's hard to calculate. Is it ever right for me to say no to anything God asks of me in light of grace? We're going to prepare for the communion here in a little bit, and I want to to share with you one story that has always moved me. And every time I think about the cross of Christ and the full extent of His love in my life, I'm always reminded of this. Uh, I think I've gotten off track here, bro, with the slides. If you could go to the last slide. We're going to skip that, skip that. Right here. I want to tell you about a story about a man named Simon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal was a Jew, and he lived in Poland. And he was enslaved by the Nazis and held in concentration camps. And obviously most of his family and friends were murdered by the Nazis. And over a two-year stint in a particular prison, he witnessed innumerable atrocities, many of which he speaks about in his book here called The Sunflower. Yet of all the things he witnessed and experienced, one event stood out more in his mind in the years after the war. And that's mostly what he chronicles here. And in 1969, he wrote this book called The Sunflower. You know, after uh, two years in this one particular prison, what they would do every day is they would go through the camp looking for the strongest men. Now, strong is an unfitting term. They were all walking skeletons, essentially, at this time. But anyone who wasn't near death. And they would line them up and they would march them for miles to do various tasks. And on this one particular day, he's marched to a schoolhouse. And he talks about in the book, when he got to the schoolhouse, he realized, wow, that's my high school. I graduated from there. But the high school had been turned by the Nazis into a triage center. And it was essentially a hospital where all the wounded Nazi soldiers and SS officers were taken to receive medical attention. And they were given all kinds of horrible jobs to do. Uh, They had to dispose of limbs that had been severed and gauze covered in blood and a variety of other things. They would give to the uh, uh, prisoners to do those kinds of tasks. And one day, Simon is standing out there and a nurse, an orderly from inside, comes in and speaks to his guard, points at him and says like this, and he said he's riddled with fear. He doesn't know what hap- is, is about to happen. Maybe this is it. She calls him in and she, and she leads him upstairs into what used to be the dean's office where he had received his high school diploma. But there the office had been turned into a triage center and there were several little like cubicles with beds of dying soldiers. And the nurse brings him in and sits him in a chair right by a bed and there's a dying soldier in the bed. And Simon says that his eyes were open, his mouth was open, and one hand was open. The rest of his body were covered in bandages. She sits him down and says, this man would like to speak to you. The man, unable to move, reaches over and grabs Simon's hand and says, are you a Jew? And Simon, confused and not knowing what the situation is all about, says, yes, 
I'm a Jew. And he says, good, I need to tell you something. And this dying SS officer was 21 years old, and he went on to tell Simon in great detail about his life, that he was raised in a Christian home by Christian parents, that he knew the Bible, he knew right from wrong. But as a teenager, he got caught up in the Hitler youth, and he rebelled against his family who told him to avoid it, and he went with the crowd. He followed the masses. And he would go on to describe the brainwashing and, and, and the... the the various things that they were told to build the hate inside of them so that they could go out and do this massacre of innocent people. And this man on his deathbed looks at Simon and he says, I need someone to forgive me before I die. And you're a Jew. You're the only one qualified to tell me everything's going to be okay. Simon, filled with emotion, went from anger to apathy to I don't care, let him die. People like you killed my family. In fact, you could have killed my family. He's thinking this in his head. But right alongside it, and what's bothering the most, is he actually starts to care for this person. There's a little bit of humanity left in Simon, and he says, on the one side of my brain, this man is vile and wretched, but I hear true repentance and sorrow in his voice. True repentance and sorrow. The man went on to explain to Simon that on one particular day, he filled a house full of Jewish women, men, and little children and set it ablaze. And all of these things, all of these gruesome acts are coming and bearing down on his soul in his final hours. He knew the sun is going down and it's going down fast. I need grace and I need it now. And I need it from someone who's qualified to give it. Simon gets up and runs out of the room. It was too much for him. When I think of stories like this, I'm reminded of the weight of grace. The extreme cost of forgiveness on that scale. And how tremendously rare it is to find it. Simon had neither the prerogative, the willpower, or the capacity to offer grace to that extent. But there is one who does. And there is only one who does. Simon sent this story out in 1969 to religious leaders around the world, political figures and philosophers and priests, and said, please tell me that I did the right thing. What would you have done in this situation? And all these people wrote back, and you can read about all their responses, and so many of them are trying to relate, trying to put themselves in Simon's situation and say, yeah, I think you did the right thing, or maybe you should have forgiven him, or who knows, God will decide. It's tough. I couldn't relate to Simon either. I found it hard, but I had no problem relating to the man in the bed. You see, I too have committed crimes against God. I too have killed at least one innocent person, and that's Jesus. My crimes were not without consequence. People were hurt because of me and my sin, and they're dealing with it somewhere now. One day... A man came to my bedside, spiritually, dressed as a prisoner, suffering for sins that weren't his own. He saw repentance in me, and he offered me grace that only he could give. That's grace that Jesus offers. It's rare. It's hard to find. We talk about following God for a variety of reasons. Fix up your family. Fix up your marriage. Patch up your finances. That's not why you're a disciple. 
This is not a self-help location. I'm not here to lecture you on methods to improve your day-to-day living. I'm not qualified for that. But I can tell you right now, the only place you will ever find the grace that you need is in Jesus Christ. And when you look at grace like that, ask yourself, why am I not following? If that can't get you up out of your chair, nothing can. If that can't get your feet up off the ground and pull the roots from your life, nothing can. That's as good as it gets. That's as good as it gets. As we get ready to share the communion, you can go ahead and start coming on down, guys. I want you to remember a few things today. The sun will eventually set on you. And although it may seem reckless at first, the time to cast your lot with God is now. There will never be a better time than today. Don't spend your life with your feet stuck to the floor or watching the wind in the clouds. Life is far too short. There will be tests, many that you fail. He will take you to the edge and back again, but wounds from a friend can be trusted, and there is no better friend than Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the extreme grace that you have made available to all of us today. I know it may be hard for some of us to take that first step or the next step. Please give us the motivation and the faith and the courage to step out and follow you, Lord. To hang in there during the tests and to look away from the dark clouds and the winds that prevail in our life. Help us to serve you better and more fully and deeper and become like you in every way. Thank you for your son and the blood that he shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.